Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time for your DC Spotlight for October 4th, 2022. Uh, Rocky and I are going to be talking about a few, most of the DC books, maybe all but one of the DC books that come out this week, uh, giving our thoughts and talking about the plot points and what have you. So reminder, there will be spoilers. If you want to check these books out on your own, before you hear our thoughts, uh, turn us <clears> off, read the books, come back when you've had a chance to check them out. So, um, that being said, I thought it was a solid, if not spectacular, week uh, of DC books. And yeah, what do you think, Rob? Uh, I would not. I, I I wouldn't call it a solid week. No, no I, I definitely wouldn't call it spectacular for me. I uh, the one the only one that I really kind of enjoyed for, despite its flaws, which we'll talk about in uh, is was Batman. And I liked uh, Gotham Knights by Tom King, um, but beyond that, I I was a I was fairly disappointed uh, this week. You know, uh, I'm just fairly disappointed. I'm really hoping you're gonna you're gonna cheer me up, and I'm hoping that you're gonna maybe you know after your some of your reviews, you'll you'll make me feel better about this week. So my my fingers are crossed, Chase. A lot of pressure on you to this week. Man, I was hoping you were going to cheer me up about some of these books. So, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I maybe I oversold it. Maybe it's not a solid. Oh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But we won't know unless we start talking about the book. So let's dive right in, starting with uh, Multiversity Teen Justice number five, Will to Survive, part five of the Finishing Touches story arc, uh, written by Ivan Cohen and Danny Lord, art by Luciano Vecchio, colors by Enrique uh, Enrica. Aaron Angiolini, letters by Carlos Mangle. This is what's interesting about this book. So th- this is part five, and it certainly ties in with what's come before, what's been going on in the book, and sort of pays off some of the relationship seeds that were planted, especially for Troy and Raven. Uh, but it still felt almost like the beginning of a new arc to me in a lot of ways. Um and I don't know if it's just taken time for the writers to kind of find their footing, but previously kind of the, the dialogue and the pacing of it, I felt was a little, could, could come across as uh, confusing. Um, and it's not any fault of the writers in terms of their passion for the characters, but these aren't well-known characters. We're talking about Earth 11 where everybody's sort of gender swapped. So somebody who's male on Earth zero is female on this Earth. And so, you know, it's a bit of a, a different uh, sort of characterization for these well-known characters like Robin and Troy and um, Aqua Woman. So they're not the same characters. They're recognizable, but they're not the same characters. They don't act the same way that their counterparts, their familiar counterparts uh, act. So you feel like you're – at least I felt like I was a little bit thrown in the deep end of the pool and there was a lot of exposition and a lot of dialogue and it at times was a little hard to follow. This was not hard to follow at all. So they've definitely take a, taken a step forward, but I wonder how it'll read. I wonder if, you know, it's just a matter of, hey, one of those situations where you just got to stick stick with it and eventually it starts to make sense. So I'm kind of curious if I went back and reread it from the beginning, knowing what I know now with the context of what's going on and a little more about these characters, if it would be a little bit of an easier read. Um, but that being said, I, I do enjoy the fact that it is a little more straightforward. It is a little bit easier to understand what's going on, and there's not so much dialogue. They're kind of letting the art tell the story, do some of the heavy lifting, 
which is great because uh, I thought the art in this issue was really, really strong also. Um, the color work was done very, very well. So easy, easy for me to say that I thought this was the best issue of the series so far. Now, that being said, do these characters grab me? Is this a series that I would you know, pick up on a regular basis going forward if I didn't get press previews? Uh, it, probably not. Um, and that's not because I think it's a bad series. There's just – even though I'm getting a better handle on these characters and I understand who they are and I'm getting a lot more context on them, there's nobody that's really relatable for me that's you know drawing me in like, oh, I can't wait to see what's going to happen with – you know, this version of the Flash, who's actually non-binary, or, you know, this uh, female version of Superboy, or Sinestra, who's a female version of Sinestro. There's just, there's nobody really there that, that grabs me. Now, I could say the same thing about their counterparts, because really, at the end of the day, this is kind of a gender-swapped Teen Titans in terms of how old these characters are and kind of the aesthetic, um, you know, the 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 feel of it is this sort of gender swapped teen supergroup, right? So I'm not a really big Teen Titans fan. You know, I don't pick up Teen Titans on a regular basis either. Uh, even if it is, you know, the Teen Titans that we all uh, are more familiar with from Earth Zero. So I'm probably not the, you know, the best judge to, to you know, to go by if I'm saying, yeah, I probably wouldn't pick this up uh, on a regular basis anyway. Um, but if you're, you know, a Teen Titans fan and you, you like stories about, those younger heroes who are kind of trying to find their footing, then, you know, this might be for you. Um, but there's no doubt that the art and the colors are, are really spectacular. And the narrative has really taken shape in terms of what is Sinestra and the other lanterns of this gender swapped um, version of reality. What, what are they after? What are they looking for? How are they going about it? And how does Teen Justice think they're going to be able to stop them? That, that's all made very clear. Uh, in this issue. So um, anyway, what do you think, Rock? Uh, well, uh, I'm going to say this, and this is going to, you know, this will be like a counterpoint to this. Uh, you know, it's funny. I remember George Perez and Marv Wolfman, they also wrote about teenagers and it was a universal and that, that, that appealed to me. And that was, and everybody seemed to love it. Uh, this hasn't resonated with me. And I'll be honest, I, I feel artistically this hasn't worked for me. I agree with you that the, that the art is good for what it is and the colors pop off the page. But uh, this it feels like I'm reading the adventures of a bunch of 12-year-olds that have 18-year-old uh, problems. That's what it looks like to me artistically. And I've, I've never been able to get into the story, not really because of that. Add to that that through most of the issues, it was – it was a little bit of a chore. It just, for me, it was. And, and I had as, at least two or three of the issues leading up to this. I had, I had to read uh, twice. One, I actually skipped because I never, I, I just, it, it just never felt right. This, this gets better. This issue, uh, this is, you know, because it does come together for fans of, uh, I, I guess, um, all I can say, it's like, I feel like I'm reviewing the early issues of Batgirl under Clunrad. All I can say is that I guess at the end of the day, these, these characters aren't for me. Um, they don't, uh, if, if these were, uh, I, I do strongly believe that if I was you know, being more blunt about it is that, you know, these stories should be able to resonate for all ages, including us as adults, uh, uh, if they were compelling. And I just don't find that they, I don't find that this is. And, um, but having said that, I mean, look, I guess this is so float somebody's boat, I guess. I find it really odd, you know, uh, Donna Troy and, uh, 
Raven uh, gender swapped them and then put them together. Uh, there's a reference. There's an editorial note, a reference to a pride issue. That's what this is for. So I, I feel that this is this is for that for that audience. Um, the story's not bad, but it's just it's it's just not for me. I, you know, I this was an evil an evil Green Lantern core uh, going against the the Teen Titans. I I personally. Earth Eleven. If there's one thing I would have loved to have seen in Earth Eleven, it was the Justice League, not the Teen Justice. Uh, that's what I would rather have seen. Uh, and the brief glimpse we got of them, even in uh, under Clunrad's, uh, ironically enough, uh, Wonder Woman, I, I uh, which I didn't think did that great a job either. But I just this is a miss for me. This is a miss for me. And I say I'll say again of all the of all the Earths in the multi Morrison's multiversity. The one that this would not have been on top of my list to have gotten a story about, but uh, as you said, I, I hope that I hope this finds its audience. But I, um, you know, uh, for 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 shippers of 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 a gender swapped Raven and Don Troy, or <laughs> you know, I guess I didn't know that was an audience, but it, it might be now. It might be now, and and all the power to it. But uh, you know, to each their own. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I mean, there's got to be an audience out there for this. Um, I just hope that they're supporting it uh, if they want more of it. Because uh, we've both said that despite it, this not resonating with us or, or being compelling to us, that it's clear that these creators are, are putting their heart and soul into this. Like that, That's true, yeah. Yeah, te- technically, this is, you know, the best comic of of the series so far. You know, I talked about some technical issues in terms of pacing and scripting for the early issues and it's gotten better. They've improved uh, as it's gone along. And technically I, I see no issues. Uh, again, I think the art is great. The colors are great. Dynamic page layout. So, you know, in, in terms of like technical skill, it, it's put together very, very well. So um, I hope that those that might be interested in it are, uh, are picking it up. If they want more, I, they, they need to be picking it up. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Next up is Fail Safe Part 4 from writer Chip Zdarsky. Um, and this is in Batman 128. Jorge Jimenez is the artist. Tameya More on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. There is a backup starring Batman of Zer and R. Um, this is also written by Zdarsky. Uh, Leonardo Romero is the artist. Jory Belair on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, a little bit of a... Francesco Francavia vibe in the art for the backup, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about the main story first. This is a big one uh, in terms of, of impact, um, but there are also some inherent problems with it, uh, but we'll get to that. Anyway, what did you think, Rocky, of this uh, latest issue, Fight and Fail Safe? Uh, I actually, this is the one where I, I, I've got uh, the, the idea, I, I'm not a fan of Uber Batman. Never have been. I, I don't. I, I've, I'm not a fan of Uber Batman, and so this is all Uber Batman. And uh, but I had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> I did. I had a lot of fun with this. Uh, do I think? Do I think Superman could be easily dispensed with by a robot Batman? Who do I think Superman is stupid enough to lure, let himself be lured in and be stabbed with a, a kryptonite sword? No. Uh, not even in the slightest. I, I, I never bought it. It wasn't. Uh, I think in many ways this wasn't particularly well choreographed as a fight scene by Sardaski. Uh, essentially, uh, Batman is, or fail safe, uh, Batman had 
the Batman or Zur and Ah program failsafe to essentially lure the Justice League into a particular part of Gotham where he had set a bunch of traps to basically take out all the members of the Justice League. There's so many things that don't really fly with that. I mean, how would he know? How would how would failsafe even know or Batman even know that? I mean, there, there there could have been a different membership of the Justice League. What if yep. you're facing what what if you're facing Black Adam? Good luck, my friend. Or what if you're facing, uh, you know, what if you're facing uh, uh, Lex Luthor, who happened to be on a good side on a on a particular day, or or or, or uh, you know, or Lady Shiva instead of Black Canary, or you know, I mean, you, you, the list goes on and on. And and now you could argue that, of course, Batman of Zoranah would have, you know, he's got every possible contingency plan for every membership of the Justice League. But again, it's it's the Uber Batman aspect of it that I kind of I shake my head, but in a cool fanboy way. So I kind of like kind of. Like scoff a little bit but at the same time this is really fun this is cool i mean the action sequences here are awesome batman taken out by failsafe and then batman bruce wayne saving superman's life in in the in the in the bat jet in the bat jet we're telling tim drake take superman to the fortress of solitude your priority is to save him you dump me off in the ocean superman gets rescued by aquaman and he he's you know he and he's spends two months in a coma or whatever it is and he comes out of it and and failsafe has cut off all of gotham from everyone and the bat family are like fugitives hiding out in in from failsafe in gotham city so this is quite the setup there's a lot of action uh it's just it's visceral it's action-packed it's go 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 it's an adrenaline rush it reminds me of the opening issue where we first met failsafe wondering who he was i thought this was it was very well done i love the uh zardaski he gets a, he has a decent handle on the justice league the dialogue i thought was good the dialogue between uh, you know Black Canary, Green Arrow, uh, Martian Manhunter, and uh, I mean just, there was just some some pretty there were really cool moments here, and really a heartfelt moment between Bruce Wayne as Batman uh, telling Tim Drake, uh, uh, you know I'm proud of you, Tim, of the man you've become. As he and don't worry about me, I'll survive this. As he as he lets himself fall out of the plane, Tim Drake taking Superman to the fortress to save Superman's life. Uh, because, uh, and, and even failsafe, even failsafe has a personality because failsafe has an opportunity to kill the Justice League, but he, that's not failsafe's jo- job. Failsafe could, could have killed Black Canary uh, by putting a mask on her and depriving her of oxygen, but he gave her just enough for her to breathe, but not enough for her to use her sonic scream. So you could tell Batman had programmed failsafe, the Batman Nazarena had programmed failsafe to take action, but not necessarily lethal action in incapacitating the Justice League. So, very clearly, this is a computer program. It very much is with one objective, and that is kill Batman. <laughs> and so I like that. It's, it's, it's being true to, true to its programming and it's not becoming evil or corrupted. It's being, it's doing exactly what you'd expect it to do if you're, if it's programmed by Bruce Wayne, Batman, who is, after all, the second smartest man in the DC universe next to Lex Luthor, if you believe, uh, uh, pre-death metal lore. So in any event, I really enjoyed it. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of have mixed mixed feelings about it. I'm never a big, huge fan of um, when they, they do these big time jumps, right? Batman, as you mentioned, uh, in case anybody missed it, yeah, they, they take him to the he, – he he tells Tim Drake to take Batman to the Fortress – or to, sorry, Superman to the Fortress of Solitude, and he jumps out of the Justice League jet or whatever you want to call it. Um, because he doesn't want to put Bat, uh, Superman in danger. So I, I appreciated that. I thought that was very um, kind of heartfelt and emotional and showed how much Bruce values Superman and, and their friendship. And 
knows, you know, he, he says, basically says the world needs Superman more than they need me. So, you know, go, go and save him. Um, and, and bails out and ends up in Atlantis where he's, where he's hidden for two months to heal. That's how damaged his body is. I'm never a big fan of big time jumps like that. Um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, continuity wise, it doesn't make sense, but I suppose the fact that Batman's even in this book when supposedly he's dead, even though we knew he was never dead along with the rest of the justice league. And it wasn't even close to being dead with dark crisis, but we'll talk about dark crisis in a little bit. Um, but I'm just never a big fan of it because it, it causes so many issues and, and it feels like a kind of a cheat for the writer. Like, well, I want to tell this particular story, but all these pieces need to be in place, but I don't really know how to get them in place. So I'm just going to do a big time jump from one panel to the next or one page to the next and just tell everybody in the meantime, this is what happened. Like Gotham is, you know, controlled by failsafe and, and there's all these problems with that, right? Like Rocky mentioned the, the fact that failsafe gets to drop on Batman. Like I talked about it at the end of last issue when Superman shows up and in Batman's own words, he's playing the, the angry dad uh, telling failsafe, you know, you're, you're done. Um, and Zdarsky, to his credit, he sort of, okay, I want to tell this failsafe story. I want to tell this Batman story. Superman is a problem to be solved because at the end of the day, and this is true for a lot of stories when you think about it, Superman is so powerful that really he could solve the problem in a matter of moments with his heat vision or x-ray vision or, or something, some of one of his powers, you know, he could, he could, to, to kind of paraphrase from aliens, right? He could nuke the site from orbit, right? Yeah. So we, there's no doubt. So how does that work? How does that allow Zdarsky to tell the story he wants to tell if Superman could just come in and solve the problem, you know, in two panels? It, that's boring. So I get it. But it is a, a problem because the solution he comes up with, like Rocky said, doesn't make any sense. He and Zdarsky tries to acknowledge that, right? Like Superman keeps his, he sees Failsafe pull out the kryptonite swords, and so he knows he needs to keep his distance. But then all of a sudden, he lets himself get lured close. No, no, he doesn't need to. He can use his heat vision. He can use his super speed. You know, fly off three, four, five, six, ten miles, whatever, and fly in at the thing at you know this incredible amount of speed built up and power built up, and just blast a hole through the thing. Like there's any number of ways he could blow on the thing and freeze it and then take it up in space, you know, where the thing has no ability to propel itself and it's just trapped floating. Like there's any number of ways that Superman could defeat this thing, but this isn't a Superman comic. It's a Batman comic. So got to get Superman off the table. So what's not explained is, okay, Batman's taken off the table for two months while he heals. And in the meantime, fail safe with the knowledge of Batman and the programming, whatever has taken over Gotham and, there are a few of the other Bat family who are trying to I, I create a rebellion against Failsafe's rule, you know, <laughs> if you want to put it in those terms, if you will. Yeah. They're still there trying to figure out a way, a way to defeat it. And now Batman wakes up. He's got to figure out, okay, well, we know that it doesn't take that long for Superman to heal. Yes, he got stabbed by a kryptonite sword, but you take him to the Fortress of Solitude, Kellex and the other – uh, machines there, Kryptonian machines are going to be able to extract that kryptonite. You expose him to some solar radiation and he's good to go. That takes a day at most, right? And then Superman goes and takes care of failsafe, doesn't make this, if he's dumb enough to make that mistake, which didn't 
really ring true to me or Rocky. He's certainly not going to make that mistake twice, right? <laughs> so wh- why has two months gone by and Superman not gone in and taken care of? Like, yeah, Bruce Wayne should have woken up and Bruce should have been standing there and handed him like a paperweight. And Bruce could have said, what's this? He's like, it's fail safe. It's what's I mean, left. It's right? nonsense. I mean, dark, dark side, darks, if dark side took over Gotham, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be lasting two months. Uh, you know right. what I mean? It's just, it's absolute nonsense. And it's, it's just, you know, again, like I said, it, it kind of grates on me a little bit, but this issue was beautiful to look at. There was fun action sequences. I thought, I thought he nailed the character. So, you know, I'm, I'm forgiving about it. And it's an Uber Batman story. So it's almost like, even though, well, it's not my preferred iteration of Batman. Like I said, I'm not even the Batman of Zero and I was never my iteration of Batman. I wasn't a big fan of that original story uh, by Grant Morrison. I didn't like it at all. But in any event, uh, it's I don't know. It's it's fun for those who love Uber Batman. They're, they're, you're in heaven with this issue. I guarantee you that. Yeah, I just thought there was better ways to do it. He could have had. Um... He could have had not to play script doctor, but I'm going. I'm going to. Yeah, he could have had failsafe like mind link with Superman and like trap him in his own mind. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, Alan Moore for the man who has everything. Do something like that where it could take a while for him to you know to figure it out. Um, and don't have it. Doesn't need to be two months. Have it be two weeks. Makes it rings a little more true. But you're you're totally right. I caught the same ah. thing about the. Uh, the membership, like it didn't make sense. Yeah. So Bruce Wayne owns these two blocks and it was always set up for the whole, it, you know, just feeds into that narrative. Like you said, of the Uber Batman, if Batman has enough uh, time to plan, he can defeat anybody. But yeah, how does he, how do you know at this particular time that this is going to be the membership of the Justice League? What if Red Tornado was there? What if to your point, Black Adam was there? Like, it, yeah. It, yeah. So if you don't read too much into it and you don't try to make it make sense, it's a heck of a lot of fun. The art's fantastic. Um, I am kind of curious because, as I said, there is a, a backup that has everything to do with Bruce creating the Batman of Zurinar, um, and and what that's about. I, I I'm not a big fan of the Morrison run either. I'm not sure why Zdarsky feels the need to explore this, um, but it it is com- it is compelling. It is it, interesting. It's a little more interesting to me than the main story in a way um, it's called I am the gun and it's all about why did Bruce feel compelled to, to create the, this persona of um R, which then will lead to fail safe, which then leads to the, the main story. Um, and it has to do with, you know, he, he, he mentions the fact that he never wants to use a gun because, you know, guns are what killed his parents and he, he wants people to be able to be safe safe from guns, safe from crime, that sort of thing. But he realizes that in his quest to become Batman, he has created a weapon. He himself is a weapon, a weapon that's even more dangerous for a gun uh, to, to which there is no safety, you know, and if somebody were to take him over mind control and that kind of thing, he could be super dangerous. So, yeah. you know, what, <laughs> what things will he put in place to kind of 
solve that problem. So uh, what do you think of the backup? <laughs> well, the backup, the backup's fine. It just, but I, I agree with you in, in one respect and, and I'm reading into your words here that I, to me, it's just, it's just funny how much of a psychotic Batman really is. This is another example of just how royally screwed up psychologically Bruce Wayne is that, I mean, no, I, I, I won't shoot a gun, but I'll make myself go even more crazy and create an alternate persona of myself that creates a fail safe that is capable of destroying the justice, uh, the entire justice league. Uh, I mean, good grief. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, the guy's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna go insane if he, if he actually brings himself to kill the Joker. But, you know, it's okay to, to, to create an ultimate Bat- Batman of Serena. And it's just, it's just, it's just funny that this is why it, it yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't, look. I know that there's people out there that love Morrison's Batman. I wasn't a fan of, of it other than uh, bringing in Damien. Uh, but even with Damien Wayne, I, I, I thank Grant Morrison for giving us Damien Wayne. But uh, it was uh, it was a Patrick Gleason uh, who uh, his art and uh, uh, Patrick Gleason in. I can't remember the other or Tomasi that made me love Damien. So I'm not a big fan of the Morrison run on Batman to begin with. And but this is at least taking the Batman or Zurana and having fun with it and doing something cool as this is infinitely more interesting than what Morrison did with Batman or Zurana. This has taken Batman's psychosis and actually taken it, in my view, to its logical conclusion. Uh, Batman is you know, you think Harvey Dent is dangerous? Uh, having two personas. Batman is twice as dangerous as Batman and his alter ego, the Batman is there or not clearly show. And um, so I, I don't mind it. And I actually love the art. Is that, is that Frank Avila's art? That looks really nice. It looks like, it looks like Frank Avila's art. You're, you're on mute there. Uh... Yeah. Uh, it's somebody named Leonardo Romero, but oh, yeah, you're right. I, I looks so, totally, yeah, I totally thought it was Frank Avila. So yeah, it definitely works for the aesthetic. As far as Zurin are, I mean, part of the problem I had with Morrison creating him was that it was one of those things that Morrison does. And I know Morrison's beloved by some people. I don't particularly care for him, um, his his work myself, or, or their work, I should say. I think he's non-binary these days. So, um, But anyway, the, my point is that he does this thing where he'll go back and he'll pull something from the Golden Age or Silver Age and kind of modernize it and, and use it. But it yeah. feels like part of what he's doing is – kind of showing off like i know so much obscure stuff about you know crazy stories or whatever i'm gonna pull it out so I, originally batman of R was this guy who uh, was an alien and somehow was observing earth or something like that if i remember correctly and, and saw batman and decided for to help combat crime on his own planet he was going to create this persona of batman uh, on that planet and the name of the planet was zur nr uh and then Morrison gets it and brings it in and says, no, it was actually a persona that Bruce himself created. And Zurinar was um, uh, the name of – was how Bruce heard something that his father said about Zorro. Um, and he misheard it and and heard it as Zurinar rather than Zorro. And so that's where it came from. And so he totally had, had changed it around. But again, it wasn't – it didn't have a depth to it in my mind. Uh, it was just a little bit kind of two-dimensional and, and just felt like one of, another one of those like Morrison tricks, if you will, uh, Morrison gimmicks. Um, so I do appreciate that Zdarsky is bringing more to it, uh, like Rocky said. So uh, anyway, that's more than enough about Batman 128. Let's move on to Gotham City Year One. 
written by Tom King, pencils are by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. Um, this is a story that uh, stars Slam Bradley and the Waynes from back in the day and has a little bit of uh, what was this? Uh, Lind- the Lind- the whole idea of the Lindbergh kidnapping, right? Charles Lindbergh, very famous aviator uh, whose son was kidnapped. And this time it's uh, a child of the Waynes who's kidnapped. And I-, I appreciate that this is in the 60s and it's kind of delving in into that, kind of taking from history in, in a lot of ways with this baby girl um, – Helen, who is Richard and uh, God, what's the Constance? Wife? Constance, Constance that's right. Constance, yeah. Who I, I, they, so I, they're the parents of Thomas Wayne, if I'm not mistaken. So they'd be Bruce's yeah. grandparents. Um, and so, and it's, it's set in the 60s, and there's definitely some, um, some language. There's a, there's a warning about trigger language in here because it uses the not the the actual n word, but some um, some you know la- words like colored and negro and that sort of thing. But again, that it's language that was used at the time. It's not um, in here salaciously or anything like that. Um, and again, it is Slam Bradley, so it's it's sort of uh, a crime noir story. For those not familiar with Slam Sam. Slam Bradley. He's a private detective. He used to be on the uh, member of the Gotham Gotham City Police Department. He's pulled into this kidnapping mystery um, by uh, persons unknown who basically have him deliver a letter to the Wayne saying, "Give the money, give the ransom money to Slam Bradley, and he'll bring it to me." And Slam doesn't even know; like he he had no idea that this is going on. So. The security there at Wayne Manor kind of beats the crap out of them, and it's it's not a, a pleasant experience. Um, so it's Tom King doing something Tom King does very, very well, which is write this kind of period piece that kind of sets a narrative. It pulls you in. It feels rooted, very much rooted in the time period that it's set in, and aesthetically it works really, really well. So does the color. Um, and so does the art to some extent. Um, I've, I've said a lot of times that I don't think that Phil Hester's art is best suited for superhero work and that it's better for crime noir or kind of slice of life. Uh, and I, I hold to that. And I think that is very self-evident here, especially when it comes to the way his line work is colored. That being said, I'm still not a huge fan of, um, of Phil's work. It's very angular. Um, and that, that's nothing against Phil. I, I know Phil personally, he's a great guy. Um, and storytelling wise, his art is strong, but just the angularness of it, uh, is just something that I don't care for. Like even people's facial features oftentimes, um, are very angular. Um, you know, we have sharp corners on people's jaws, uh, jaw lines and, and, you know, the tips of their noses and things like that, which that's just not how people look in re- in real life, if you will. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I remember that I think the first time I became aware of Phil Hester was when, um, Kevin Smith was doing the qu- quiver 
story arc, I think it was called, for Green Arrow when Oliver Queen was coming back. Yeah. Kevin Smith wrote it, and, and people just raved about that art. Um, and I'd never seen Phil Hester's art. Um, and then when I went back and saw it, I was a little surprised um, how much people enjoyed it. Um, there's just – there's the, the aesthetic of his art is just – there's something about it that is just looks a little off to me. Um, and I think it's that that ang- ang- angular angularity is that a word? Um, just how how <laughs> angular the art is. Um, but right at the end, last page, we get um, a hint that maybe this whole story uh, about what's going on with Slam and, and the kidnapping and what have you is being relayed to Batman in more modern times. But we don't know by who. It just seems to be this old man who's smoking a pipe. Um, and I, I don't know if we're supposed to think that's slam Bradley because I, I think we are, I think yeah, because slam was, um, smoking a pipe earlier in the issue. Uh, yeah. but yeah, he, the years have not been kind to slam if that's indeed the case, but, um, the story is interesting and compelling. And I especially love how, like a lot of the best Batman stories, Gotham city itself is definitely a character in this book. And it's so interesting because to hear Slam talk about it, this is Gotham sort of before it became the Gotham that we all know. And that's something that Tom King talked about at San Diego Comic-Con on one of his panels about when uh, when he announced this, about how this is kind of an origin story for Gotham as well. Like how did Gotham become kind of the the, the crazy, insane place to live that we know it to be? And we, we've mentioned recently earlier this year on this podcast that you'd have to be either really dumb or really insane to actually live in Gotham based on the craziness that happens there and the amount of crime and danger and and what have you. But to hear slam talk about it, he's like, yeah, people didn't even lock their doors. People are out playing in the streets and riding their bikes. And yeah, it was kind of a, a happy, bright place. And that's certainly not the way you would describe Gotham now. So this Gotham city year one, I think is really partly the story of how Gotham became the, uh, dangerous place that uh, we all know it to be. Um, anyway, what did you think? I really enjoyed this. Kudos to Tom King again. I, I This is based loosely on the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, how do I know that? Well, I actually don't know that. I never, I've not I, I've not read any interview with Tom King talking about this. I, I read this blind and I, I saw Tom King on the cover of it. Uh, but Tom King has, he's been uh, people, you know, He's certainly taken from other uh, stories before, uh, uh, from his Batman run, and uh, in particular, he's borrowed from other. He's borrowed stories and mythologies from other literature, and what have you. And he clearly does so here. Uh, I remember. I'm going back maybe 20 years. I, I read. A, I read. I read about the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping, and uh, I, and it reminded me a little bit. And all of the clues that the Wayne's child, Helen Helen Wayne, has been kidnapped, and there are clearly clues here that uh, you know the evidence would seem to suggest possibly that uh, that uh, Richard Wayne is responsible for kidnapping his own daughter, possibly uh, just like Charles Lindbergh was. If you remember the the uh, there's in fact there's ample evidence, and in in the real world, I would encourage people to actually. Read up on Charles Lindbergh. He wasn't just an anti-Semitic bastard uh, who flew across the Atlantic uh, and was giving a and, and given a, a medal of uh, of some reward by by Goebbels, uh, uh, 
a Nazi, but in any event, he he did. Uh, there's ample evidence to suggest that he may may have murdered his own child, and uh, it's quite interesting. And uh, a kidnapping gone wrong, and all the evidence here that Tom King uh, references in you know uh, where there's 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 an open window, the crib's undisturbed, uh, young Helen Wayne's favorite blanket is missing with an owl on it, and I found that interesting. Uh, her favorite blanket has an owl on it. Could that be a reference to Court of Owls? Could the Court of Owls be part of this mystery of the kidnapping of Helena of, of Helen Wayne? Uh, there's a white envelope near the near the crib. Uh, there's two footprints in the mud uh, outside the window. There's a ladder nearby. These were all things that were found that were all that were all similar to the to the evidence uh, on the crime scene of the Lindbergh kidnapping. And so now. Critics of Tom King will say, well, this is nothing new. This is an original. Tom King is just ripping off uh, historical uh, information and and twisting this story to fit Gotham. Nothing original here. Go about your day. But I like that. I think I think it's kind of fun. And I think it has something to say about Gotham. This might be the loss of the innocence. At some point, this is Gotham City year one. At some point, Gotham City lost its innocence. And and the loss of the innocence might might have to do it in this particular tale with perhaps something that happened with the Waynes because whether we're, you know, Gotham city has always been intricately linked with the, the history of the Waynes, uh, whether you're looking at a Murphy verse or any iteration of Gotham city, the Waynes always play a pivotal role. And in this case, I don't think that's it. There's any exception here. It's great to see slam Bradley involved here as the detective who ends up getting caught up in this world of, of this kidnapping. He's probably being used. Uh, we know that Constance and Richard Wayne in this story, uh, they haven't been sleeping in the same bed for many years. So their relationship uh, is probably a little bit, they're, they're probably not, haven't been intimate for a while. So they probably don't like each other. Maybe they don't even love each other anymore. It says a lot about the grandparents of, uh, of Bruce Wayne. And the fact that an older Slam Bradley at the end of this is telling this story to Batman, he must know perhaps some secret. He Maybe he knows Batman's Bruce Wayne. And there must be a reason why he's telling this story. I personally am intrigued by it. And I'm really curious to see where it goes. And I would definitely encourage people to pick it up. But just be forewarned. I mean, look, you, you and I have enjoyed most of what we've read by Tom King. And, I, you know, I'm, I like this. This might be, you know, some people will criticize, well, this is staining the legacy of the, of the Wayne family history. And, well, I, I really don't care. I mean, we got in, a, in Gotham City. I mean, I don't know. It can't get any darker anyway. Um, and then somewhere in the distance, Tom King is saying, hold my beer. But uh, I'm enjoying this. And uh, yeah, I would, uh, I thought it was well worth a read. Now I'll be, I'll definitely be picking this up. And I like Phil Hester's art. I think it, it, it fits. It doesn't, it doesn't quite, uh, I think the story works for it. I, you know, he's not my first choice of artist, but I thought he, this is some of his best work in a long time. I really thought he did a good job conveying the, the atmosphere, the time period, and uh yeah i quite i quite enjoyed it so yeah yeah i agree, I agree on the art uh, might not be my favorite style of art but it definitely suits the the story for sure uh as far as slam bradley knowing that batman is bruce wayne 100 percent, he knows it's right there in the, the first uh, <laughs> panel you. that we see if this is indeed an old an older version because he goes to light his um pipe and his voice off panel says you shouldn't it'll kill you and Slam Bradley's like, it'll kill you. You sound just like your grandpa. But then when we right. see who he's talking to, he's talking to Batman. He's wearing the costume. So, yeah, clear that he knows, however that may be, that he knows Bruce Wayne and Batman are one and the same. So, all right. 
Up next, we have uh, Black Adam, uh, the Justice Society Files, Dr. Fate, number one. So this is the book that the, the last of the one shots that tie into or give kind of a, an introduction to some of the characters that we're going to see in the Black Adam movie. There's a couple of pretty cool covers, including one that's like a photo cover with the Dr. Fate from the movie played by Pierce Brosnan. For whatever reason, there aren't any um, credits in, in this book for the main story. Um, but it is written by Kevin Scott, just like all the other um, the other one shots have been. I believe the art is by in the main stories by Jesus Moreno, Michael Atea, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Ulysses Ariola does the color work for the main. And then there is also uh, a backup story that um, that tells the story of the female co-star of the movie. Um, Ariana, I think she becomes Isis. That's the rumor, but Ariana's her name. Yeah, yeah, and I want to say that the um, that the artist who plays her is named Sarah Shahai or Shara Shahai or something. The like actress, that. the actress that plays yeah. her, yeah, yeah, that plays her in the movie, Sarah Sh- Shahai. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, but yeah, the the backup story is clearly her story as well as a little bit of background into Black Adam himself. Um, and that's written by Brian Q. Miller, art by Marco Santucci, Michael Atea does the colors, Rob Lee on letters. Chapter four of four, which um, it, the thing is, it doesn't really end, right? It just says to be continued in DC's Black Adam. So it's really the backup story in these these four one-shots that really are the prelude to the movie. And uh, I imagine there's going to be some quote unquote bad guys and they're, they'll be searching for this artifact that Ariana has uh, in the backup story. And then really the, the, the main stories we had one about Hawkman. We had one about Cyclone. We had one about Adam Smasher. And now we have one about Dr. Fate. They're really just an introduction to give you some context into who these characters are. So is, does this story and the art by Jesus Moreno is, is really, really great. Wonderful detail. Uh, is it the best likeness of Pierce Brosnan I've ever seen? No, uh, it's not. I don't know that I've ever actually seen Pierce Brosnan drawn in a, in a comic um, <laughs> now that uh, I think about it. But likenesses are really hard to do. And it looks enough like Pierce Brosnan, certainly in kind of the Kent Nelson or the version of Kent Nelson that he is in the movie, that it's recognizable. Like, you know, right away, oh, this is um, the Kent Nelson from the movie. This is, you know, a uh, Pierce Brosnan uh, version of Dr. Fate. And so that's fine. Uh, and I also thought that it, it kind of gives us a little bit of the darker edge that we've had in, from Dr. Fate in, in recent years in, in the DC universe. So I think it does a good job of kind of introducing the character. And that's the point of what these books are supposed to do. So um, <laughs> the one about Hawkman, yes, it was a different version of Hawkman, but it introduced it, uh, introduced that character very well. I thought the same thing about the Atom Smasher and the Cyclone one, um, maybe the Atom Smasher one, a little bit to a lesser degree um, in terms of getting to know who that character is, uh, you know, on a, on a deeper level. But my argument there would be Atom Smasher doesn't really have – it's not like there's a definitive Atom Smasher series out there that's really explored who he is on a deeper level. He's He is sort of somewhat of a shallow character. So the fact that that one shot was a little more generic – 
was kind of to be expected because he's sort of a generic character in a lot of ways. Um, Dr. Fate is not. He's got a lot of nuance to him, and there's no way you can explore all that and explore the um, the conflict between the Lords of Chaos and Lords of Order in, in a one-shot. So that's not even brought up, which is fine because that probably won't be brought up in the movie. If the movie does well enough and Dr. Fate – you know, resonates with people. Maybe he'll get his own solo movie and you can explore that at some point. But this book does what it's supposed to do. And that's introduce Dr. Fate, show his ability, show his power and give us some really, really great art. And then, uh, like I said, the backup, yeah, it's just kind of a tease for what's to come in the movie. And I, I certainly plan on reading the four backup parts together in kind of one sitting before I go and see the the movie. And I think it would even behoove DC to collect the backup and put it all in one book and I don't know, maybe sell it at the theater um, or release it a few weeks before the movie comes out and says, Hey, if anybody wants to read, um, you know, what's going on or have some background into what's going on in the film, read this. I think that would be a pretty smart thing to do. So that being said, they probably won't do it. But uh, anyway, what'd you think of this issue? Uh, well, uh, it's 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 a setup issue as all the Black Adam uh, comic books have been. It's it's setup. Uh, essentially, Doctor Fate here just has it, it's just it's very straightforward. It does a very uh, gives you just the bare bones uh, information about Doctor Fate. He's basically all you need to know when you read this. If you know nothing about Doctor Fate, and most people, prob- most moviegoers who happen to wander into a comic shop and pick this up because they see Pierce Brosnan, <laughs> a sophisticated Pierce Brosnan uh, on the cover. They're just going to, they're going to be introduced to Dr. Fate, who they're just going to think is sort of like a mystic uh, who meditates a lot. And basically like the DC's version of Dr. Strange is probably what, how they're going to describe him. And he basically, he meditates and he has a dream where a demon enters his, his dream state and basically threatens him. Meanwhile, somewhere across the country in the United States, a bunch of children find a dead body in a barn and under a, under a barn and one of the kids try becomes possessed by this it's it's the body of, a, of an old witch a skeleton of a witch and it's one of the children becomes possessed by a demon dr fate shows up and battles the demon and be and as the uh uh, Dr. Fate only defeats this demon because one of the children, one of the young men, throws him his helmet of Naboo, his, his helmet, which he uses to defeat the demon, and he thanks the child. And the child reminds him not to punish, reminds Dr. Fate to be, to show compassion on one of his friends who was possessed by the demon because Dr. Fate, who's lived for many centuries apparently, uh, was going to let the one child die because this child allowed herself to be possessed. And, and so he thanked the child for reminding him of his his compassion and uh that was and then before and then before before the end as he was battling off the demon with the helmet of Naboo Dr. Fate has a vision of the Justice Society being reformed again but a vision of the Justice Society being uh, all killed uh at the he has a, a vision of at some point of Black Adam sitting on a throne Although he wouldn't know who Black Adam is, sitting on a throne, and the corpses of uh, of the Cyclone and himself and uh, Hawkman all all sprawled out in front of him, and so and then at, at the end he's called by Hawkman and and he says, "No, let me guess, you want us to form the just, you want to get the Justice Society back together again?" And Hawkman says, "Yeah, how did you know?" And and basically that leads into the movie. The backup, just just 
to be clear, those people who are interested in maybe collecting the backup here, Ariana, all, all these four issues, these four different issues so far, is just Ariana on the trail to ultimately find what is finally revealed at the end of this backup. She's looking for the rock of eternity. And she finds, she happens to find a map, uh, which, you know, sort of, uh, uh, which is basically on, on something she finds, uh, she's, it's a map leading to something called the crown, which is buried someplace in the rock of eternity. And this will likely, it's got one more issue. So this will probably end with her finding the rock of eternity because the next issue is going to be the Black Adam issue. And then it'll probably end with Ariana finding the Rock of Eternity. And that will segue into the movie where she finds and enters the Rock of Eternity, uh, where she ultimately releases Black Adam. We know that from the preview. So I think that's how all this is tying in. So, you know, at least there's some continuity there, which is what we want and expect for these types of tie-ins. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it definitely previews the film, which, again, that's why I think yeah, it would be great if this backup was collected and – you know, available at the theater here, read this while you're eating your popcorn, waiting for the movie to start. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have monkey Prince issue number seven, the, re- the return of this title for its second six issues uh, from writer, Jean Luen Yang. The art is by Bernard Chang. Marcelo Maialo does the colors, Janice Chang on letters. Um, there's a, a couple of cool covers, including um, a variant by Marcus toe with rain Barreto. Um, if you liked the first arc of Monkey Prince, you're going to love this one. It picks right up where the first arc left off with uh, the Monkey Prince. I did uh, appreciate that Monkey Prince is uh, self-aware enough to know that when he turns into Monkey Prince, that a little bit of the shyness that he has uh, kind of fades away, and he even you know mentions it. It's like, man, it's not just my body that changes. It's, uh, you know, my brain too. And as he's there meeting Aquaman, he kind of, um, he kind of smarts off. (laughs) He says, uh, thoughts come at him a mile a minute and he says things that he would never say when he's human. So, uh, I, I did enjoy that. I enjoyed kind of the back and forth between him and Aquaman who Aquaman, it never used to be this way. Um, like I can remember, I mean, first time I ever saw Aquaman was probably the old super friends cartoon. Um, but then seeing him back in the day in the Justice League um, comics, he was always very vanilla. He didn't have much to him. And then sort of as the Detroit era of the Justice League came about with Jerry Conway writing, he, he had a little bit more of an edge. And then you know the Peter David run where he got his hand bit off and replaced by a hook and grew the beard and long hair. <laughs> then he really had an edge and a temper. And that's been sort of dialed back a little bit now, but there is that that aspect to him that feels like he's a little arrogant. He's a little bit of a pompous jerk at times, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it sort of depends on, on who's writing him. Right. Cause if you look at the new 52, which was the best selling Aquaman solo title there ever was when it first started, partly because it was a, a fresh start, new 52 and all those titles sold relatively well, but it was by Jeff Johns and had art by Ivan Reis. So it was done really, really well. And it was again, super popular, but that was more kind of a throwback to the old school Aquaman. He had short hair. He was clean shaven. But if you look at what Aquaman looks like now, yeah, he's back to the, the long hair, the beard, um, tattoos sometimes as Jason Momoa has, who, who plays him uh, in the DC cinematic universe. But um, either way, I, I say all that to say that, 
yeah, he, he is somewhat of a jerk here. And when monkey prince Marcus, uh, mouths off to him, he kind of gives his, uh, as good as he gets in a lot of ways. So, um, why Atlantis? Why, why the monkey prince, you know, why, uh, Jean Luen Yang and Bernard Chang and the rest of the creative team decided to to tie into Atlantis of all things because there is Dragon Town that we were introduced to in the last issue when we saw the Monkey King might still be around trapped in another dimension. Like, what what is it about? Um, you know, what is it about Atlantis? What is it about Dragon Town? Like, what what is the connection there? Uh, because in this issue, when Monkey Prince goes to Dragon Town, um, there's this big structure wand they call it that's that's um coming up from under the ground uh of, of atlantis from the ocean floor uh and it has something to do with the monkey prince and his legend and when the monkey prince goes to dragon town to investigate uh some of the inhabitants of dragon town they mistake uh, monkey prince for the monkey king so clearly there's some tie in there um yeah why the creative team chose atlantis aquaman of all People, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm assuming it'll become more clear as uh, as these last six issues. Well, it's, it's primarily his parents, right? His parents are working well, for his different super villains, working, right? Yeah. And they end up working for Bach Manta. <laughs> right. But, like, I, I get that, but they, they could have chosen anybody. Like, they yeah. could he could have made it work. I mean, we saw him when he was in Gotham. They were working for the Penguin. Now they've moved to Amnesty Bay. And yeah, so if you go Amnesty Bay, then obviously you're going to go Aquaman, you're going to go Black Manta, but it just as easily could have had him move to Central City um, and had the Silver Horn, that uh, Silver Horn Demon, which apparently always wants to take over supervillains, take over like the Trickster or the Weather, we- weather Wizard or somebody like that or Reverse Flash. Um, and then the Monkey Prince could be teaming up with Flash. So. I'm just not sure why they chose Atlantis other than Atlantis is really old, I guess. And so you can make it work at that on that level. So anyway, this is fun. Uh, it definitely has the same sort of feel and, uh, of adventure and what have you that uh, the first six issues had. So I encourage everybody. I, I talked to Gene Luen Yang just as the first arc uh, was finishing up earlier this year, I think somewhere around June. So if you're curious to hear more about the monkey prints from the guy who helped uh, co-create him. You can go back and listen to that interview. It was a, it was a lot of fun. So uh, what'd you think of this Rocky? Uh, yeah, it, it was okay. It's not, uh, I'm still having a hard time. It's just, it's just the character that I, uh, honestly, I just, I just can't get into, but you know, reading this, I was entertained. I, I was entertained and uh, I was certainly more entertained than uh, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this issue. Uh, if, if, Honestly, as a new one of DC's more new characters, this is actually far better done than Wonder Girl. This is far more interesting than Nubia. This is far more interesting than a lot of the the, the bigger name uh, characters out there. And, and as a matter of fact, I think this I think Monkey Prince might even sell more than Nubia too. Come to think of it, <laughs> or Wonder Girl. But in any event, it, it's a lot of fun. I love the premise. I love the premise of of uh, what what an interesting way. The whole idea of supervillains working for different or, or 
villains working for different supervillains happen to have a son who's who's the monkey prince and gets dragged around in these adventures because his parents are villains. I mean, that's just inspired. I think that's a great idea. And it works to good effect. And and the, and the monkey prince lore here is sort of tied up. Even Yang sort of ties it into a little bit of the Atlantis lore, too, in mythology, which I thought was a nice touch, too. I also like this inclination. And I don't know if it's just how it's been how Aquaman's been written recent lately and I'm talking about Aquaman Arthur Curry not Jackson High but Arthur Curry I kind of like him written like kind of a grittier kind of dick like and and I or just he says he's got a rough exterior Aquaman like Arthur Curry and I kind of like that I, I like the fact that he's not completely accessible I like that he's more of a he's definitely more of the traditional masculinity with all that, all the flaws that go with that, I kind of like that because, uh, you know, I think there's a tendency and I mean, I was actually on a live stream this past weekend talking about masculinity in comic books. And, uh, I think that there's been a, there, there has been, um, in some circles and some characters, sort of a softening of the, of the, of the masculine, uh, product, you know, fe- female characters can get away with being, uh, displaying more masculine traits. And, uh, and, and I find that in order to do that, I just, I, I like, I, I like a man's man, you know, in my, in my superhero. And I think Arthur Curry, I think they can get away with maybe leaving him to be a little bit of a very much, uh, very, very masculine. Cause Mira is a hello, is a tough woman to tie down. So I, he's got to be a little tougher because he's got the woman that justifies it. So anyway, you, no you you mean that literally? She's a tough woman to tie down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> both. I, mean, I meant that both metaphorically and literally. Yes, but I went off topic there a little bit. But you know, whatever. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, all right, so let's move on. Uh, the aforementioned Dark Crisis, which um, Rocky and I were talking about before we we started recording. Ha- you know, he he's sentiment was it's gone a little bit off the rails and my counter that was i don't know that it was ever on the rails to to begin with you know i talked from the first issue about how slow it was and how i just didn't we still don't know really i i mean apparently the big bad is pariah right all along we were told it was the great darkness turns out the great darkness has in some way corrupted pariah has has pariah in turn been controlling the great darkness but yet there seems to be somebody bigger that he's answering to I mean, we, we are almost at the end here and we still don't have any answer for that. So just don't know how well this is working. But regardless of that, we have Dark Crisis, The Deadly Green, which is written by Rom V, Alex Pacnadel, and Dan Waters. Several artists on this, including Daniel Bayliss, Tom Derenick, George Combatis, and Brett Peoples. Colors are by Matt Herms and letters are by Troy Petrie. So um, I'll let you go first on this one <laughs> and I'll go first on the, the Dark Crisis issue and We'll yeah. see if either one of us can convince the other that these are worth our time. Well, you, you know, it's funny because uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna have the Justice League Dark play a role in Dark Crisis, you probably can't get a better writer than Ram V because Ram V did uh, he's re- his Justice League Dark stories. You and I have for the most part enjoyed. Um, and uh, but I got to tell you, this was a for me, this was a chore to read. It was an exposition dump, an exposition dump by Ram V. It's uh, the most disappointing th- uh, 
it's one of the most disappointing stories that I've had that Ram V has written. Uh, I know he's re- he co-writes it with Alex uh, Patnadel and Dan Waters. Dan Waters is also someone that I really like what he's doing in Azrael, sort of Azrael right now with with the with the uh, uh, with the with the new uh, Sariel, the Angel of Death, and the uh, this the new uh, what the hell is it? Sorrow. Poor fellow, and in any event, uh, but but this is this was a, a a particularly significant miss for me. This is the story of uh, uh, first of all, there, there's a huge mix. Uh, <laughs> this part of this story takes place before Dark Crisis Number Five that we're going to review, and part of this story takes place after. Or in the middle of Dark Crisis 5, which we're going to review. So it's actually not entirely clear which one you should read first. You kind of, I know that you're supposed to read this first because there's a major revelation here, which, uh, and basically the revelation at the end, I'll just cut to it because this is a mess of an issue getting through it. The, and, and the number of artists do not help at all in providing clarity as to what's going on, in my view. And basically, they just discover that Pariah it has infected the Great Darkness. So it's not the Great Darkness that has infected Pariah and and infected the Dark Army and infected everything. No, it's been Pariah has infected the Great Darkness. So that's the big revelation, which I hate. I don't just dislike, I hate. This great big threat is now rendered to me to be a joke. I, I, it's a joke. Pariah has infected this insane person. All it took was an insane person to infect the great darkness. I mean, what a pathetic move. What, what a horrible direction for this story to go in. Instantly, it loses all gravitas to me. I'm, 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 I'm pretty much out. Hate, hate that turn of events. I want to play script doctor. I could come up with something better in my sleep. Literally. Literally. Uh, uh, now, leaving aside the fact that I don't like the world of just the world without a Justice League has been terribly handled generally. Uh, while, even while some of the stories have been tolerable, they, they don't really relate to the main, the main story. Uh, there's inconsistencies here. For some reason in this issue, Alan Scott, uh, I'm trying to make sense of this. Alan Scott feels that his ring has a connection to the great darkness. Obsidian, who, because he knows how to create darkness, somehow by putting some of his darkness in the ring, they access the great darkness. How? This is never explained. Just because, I guess, somehow that pulls in Superboy and uh, Raven into uh, the great darkness. And then there's, they're in this alternate realm and swamp things in there with them. Meanwhile, Constantine gets pulled in and Constantine ends up talking to a devil uh, and a bunch, a big exposition dump. Somehow Raven gets, I mean, I, I, this is, I, I don't even know where to go with this. Um, at yeah, some you point, even try to explain or recap because no, it doesn't it, make any, it doesn't yeah, make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's absolutely, it's just plain God awful terrible. And it's such a disappointment. And, and John Kent, and I call him John Kent because I'll call him Superboy because he, I still can't call him Superman yet. He, he merges with Swamp Thing for reasons which make no sense. Uh, the, and not only that, at the end, if you can, which just, un, 
in a, and I think it is just a, I don't know how to sugarcoat this insult, but at the end, Superboy actually comes back and, and says that, um, they say that, uh, that the that the great darkness that that apparently we've all we've infected the great darkness. So the great darkness is what's infected, uh, and somehow Superboy got out of that that Pariah has infected the great darkness, which he d- reveals in Dark Crisis number five, which is not what's said in this issue specifically. He also nonsensically, uh, Williamson has it that out of the blue they find the machine which they think is Pariah's machine that was used to initiate the original crisis, which is not true. It was the anti-monitor that did that, not Pariah. So he doesn't even understand that aspect of the original crisis. Also, all the machines were dead. The original crisis, I mean, that machine was destroyed. I, I, it, it doesn't exist. There's no explanation as to why it exists, why it would exist. Um, everything about this is just terrible. Everything, this is all Duke Ek Machina, Things just wrap up because Williamson wants it to. There's no explanation. There's no ref. There's there's no Easter egg. There's nothing. There's just nothing. Uh, this is terrible. And to make it worse, this is a major plot point. In the middle of Dark Dark Crisis Number Five, what we get to the the heroes in in this issue. They're just they just return and say, "Oh, by the way, we got this machine that we Pariah was using," and uh, uh, "Oh, by the way, he's infecting the Great Darkness." and so what? I mean, it's this. It's um, I'm I uh, <laughs> I could go on, but I'm not going to because uh, I feel so so much disdain for this issue that I don't even want to do it the further service of talking further about it. And I'll just let you talk. Yeah, you know what was funny is as I was reading it, you know, it's it's Rom V. You know, I was one of the co-writers, and I know how much you really enjoyed his Swamp Thing run recently yeah. and all I could yeah. think was well well maybe oh. I mean this is like you said it's such a slog to read I was like well maybe when we talk about it Rocky will have enjoyed it and gotten something out of it that I that I missed and and he'll explain it to me and then I'll realize yeah this this is pretty good but um it's not it's it's very expositional heavy um it doesn't particularly make sense like what, especially one thing I, I really didn't understand like you know, it starts off, and yes, it's the, this version of Justice League Dark, and yes, they're going to go into the great darkness, and it never really ex- made sense to me. Like the, the explanation that Alan Scott gives, like yeah. darkness lives within the light of his lantern ring because his lantern ring is is magic. Yeah, I, I don't know but where they they're need, getting that nonsense from. Yeah. I, but they need well, they, but they need to infect the light. Or, or they need to access the darkness in the ring by infecting the ring with more darkness from obsidian. Like that part didn't make any any sense to me. Doesn't but make I, any sense. I, okay, yeah, because reasons. And I guess I, I'd go along with that. You know, I, I know that traditionally speaking, the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott's powers were more you know magical than anything else. You know, you could look at the modern Green Lanterns and, and say that it, that's magical too. But you know, it's the whole idea. Um, of that law that any uh, sufficiently advanced technology would appear as magic to somebody who doesn't understand it. Um, and, and really, when you think about it, the, the current Green Lantern core is more science fiction than, than magical. Um, so I, I didn't necessarily understand what they were going for or why that made sense, but I could buy off on it. 
you know, for reasons, like you said, Alan Scott's, his powers are magic. So, okay, I'll, I'll buy that. Um, we have, you know, Constantine and the Alan Moore Swamp Thing, which I, I find it amusing <laughs> that the Alan Moore Swamp Thing looks like Alan Moore in terms of the giant beard and long hair. Uh, I just think that's funny. Um, yeah. But then you've got Raven, you've got Dr. Fate, you've got Yara Floor, and we're going to talk about magic, Wonder Girl, and eh, I can kind of buy it. You've got the Levi Kamei Swamp Thing. Okay, sure, no problem. Then you've got Nightwing. Like that, that one, I, what the hell does he have to do with magic? Uh, and then, I- but okay, he's got a lot of experience dealing with, you know, big uh, events and, and upheaval in the DCU, and maybe you want his insight. I, I get that. But the one that really doesn't make sense is to have John Kent there. Like, here's somebody who's a brand new hero. He's yeah. got no experience. And his biggest vulnerability, you, it could be argued, is magic. It makes no sense for him to be there. Like, he's he feels out of place the entire time. Um, and then as the story un- unfolds, it just starts making less and less sense um, as yeah. it as it goes along. Well, and another, other, who's, other, who's John Constantine talking to? Is that Trigon or Lucifer? Or who's that supposed so to be? I, it, see, it's never really explained who it is because when he first starts talking to somebody, it's the Upside Down Man, <laughs> who was the original kind of mega villain in the James Tynan, yeah. Justice League Dark, um, when Tynan kicked it off. But then later, that, uh, that person or Bean or whoever it is that um, – that Constantine is talking to kind of morphs into Trigon and then later morphs into somebody else. Um, And so it's never really clear to me who exactly it is that he's talking to. I mean, the, the last person he's talking to, it looks like, um, like Satan himself, like the, like Lucifer, like the morning star. So, Was it him all along? Because we know he has the ability to shape change. Is it some other big bad? Like, I mean, this issue is, it drags on and on um, for forty pages, talking about how. And, and again, the only sort of uh, point of the issue seems to be that yeah, uh, it, it's the other way around. It's not Pariah that's been infected by the Great Darkness, but it's it's all of us that have been uh, infecting the Great Darkness. I'm like, how does that make make sense? Like, we yeah. as as people. A pariah who's not even human. We we've. I mean, so does that mean that there's not a big bad? That's it's so stupid. I know it's so. It so, doesn't. Yeah. yeah. What's the point? It, like, what's what? Like, yeah. who's the bad guy then? Like, who? Like, I. This is so stupid. It's anyway. Yeah. I. I mean, there. There. I, I mean, I'll give Williamson the benefit of the, of the doubt. You know, he's the he's the showrunner for this event, and maybe he can make it all make sense in the end. Um, I, I mean, that is possible, but uh, it. Yeah, this was a like you said, it was a chore to read, and I, I don't. I mean, the art is just not good. There's no, there's no other way to put it. Um, art's did a disservice to all these artists by yeah. by dividing it up and having them do different pages, um, particularly Daniel Bayless who does the the beginning of it. Yeah. Um, and I kept going back and getting distracted by the symbol on Jade's chest and how it it <laughs> it just looked incredibly bad. It just looks like a bunch of sticks that are crossed against each other. It's supposed to look like an atom, right? With, um, uh, with no, protons and electrons and, and what have you. And, and you, you see later when other people draw it, Oh yeah, that that's what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. But then it goes back to being like a bunch of, of like sticks that are crossed against each. Like it just, it was so distracting. And so, 
uh, yeah, just. And the sad part is, well, we can't, we, you, you can't understand, you can't understand what's going to be going on in, in, in issue five of Dark Crisis without have, without knowing what's going on in this, uh, abortion of an issue. And that's really, really sad. Uh, it's artistically, it's not, it's not adequate. It's not good enough. And, uh, what was the point of getting Daniel Semper on Dark Crisis, uh, if he, if, if he doesn't have enough time to, to actually draw the actual stories with containing the major plot points? Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but, 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 oh boy, wait till we start talking about Dark Crisis number five. It's, <laughs> It's not as bad as this, but it's it's pretty close. It's it's Williamson is going off his rails again with theories and talking nonsense, and it's just it's it's just I I don't know. This was th- this is what put me in a bad mood this week. How bad this issue was, and how a disappointing Dark Crisis number five of seven is, and I don't see it wrapping up by issue seven. And and frankly, at this point, I don't no. even care. But whatever. No, well, it it won't it won't wrap up. <laughs> yeah. um, and it'll just continue into another miniseries, which we've talked before about, you know, why do we have Infinite Frontier and then Justice League Incarnate and then whatever else came after. It's just, it's just, just give us the series. Give us the story. I mean, you can't argue that um, the Crisis on Infinite Earths in 12 issues rebooted the DC Universe and did it very well. So there's no reason you can't. It's possible. You can do it. It can be done. Uh, I don't know why modern storytelling, and maybe it's the, the trend to make things decompressed that they can't manage to do it. I, I don't know. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Poison Ivy, Chapter 5, written by G. Willow Wilson. Art is by Marcio Takara and Brian Level. We've got inks by Stefano Guadiano, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. What do you think of this? I I actually uh, this is uh, finally uh, I I can say something you know I actually enjoyed this this was actually a nice this is sort of a this is sort of a nice callback this issue about the origin of Poison Ivy which is a callback uh, to uh, Poison Ivy's origin going back to 1988 from in right. uh, going back uh, in Secret Origins issue 36 which came out in uh, 1988 written by Neil Gaiman he wrote the origin of Poison Ivy. Which basically tells the tale that poise, uh, young uh, young Pamela Isley uh, was experimented on as a student by Jason Woodrow, who we know as the Floronic Man. And in this issue, it shows a flashback, and a lot of what's been happening in the previous four issues has been explained. We get some more substance. Uh, writer J. Willow Wilson sort of has has flushed it out, and I think she does a reasonably good job. This issue, I really like the eclectic art. It's kind of a crazy psychedelic kind of art, which I thought. Really really worked well for the fact that she's uh, the flashback is her hallucinating because she's being injected with all these chemicals because uh, early on the doctor uh, Jason Woodrow experimented on her when she was a grad student and and ultimately she became uh, that's what led to her becoming poison ivy and what's revealed in this issue is in fact uh, Pamela Isley when uh, at some point after the events of uh, after the events of uh, Joker War essentially went to Jason Woodrow and wanted the Lamia spores because she wanted to use the Lamia spores. And she basically took the Lamia spores from Jason Woodrow and uh, essentially – uh, basically, well, she, I think she, she, she paid for them, I believe, or she forcefully took them. In, in any event, Jason Woodrow has some control over the Alamia spores. And so they end up fighting in this issue. And because the, the, the one that's been, the Lamia spores have been secretly, they've been, uh, they've been killing 
everybody that they come in contact with. But as Jason Woodrow explains, these uh, these spores are actually uh, they weren't made to kill or wipe out humanity. These Lamia spores were actually made for biosurveillance and mind control. Uh, and, and Jason Woodrow would be the one, the floronic man would be the one controlling, uh, controlling the minds of the people infected by the spores, including ultimately, I imagine, Poison Ivy herself. And so while Poison Ivy was in her own crazy way wanting to use the spores to wipe out humanity and then ultimately die herself after wiping out humanity, all for Harley, Harley Quinn, uh, what's re- what's the truth is that these Lamia spores aren't going to wipe out humanity now. So it's a little bit of a bait and switch, which is maybe a criticism of J. Willow Wilson, because J- Do- Dr. Jason Woodrow reveals here that, in fact, these spores are just about biosurveillance, which is kind of an inter- – I like that term, biosurveillance. What does that mean? Uh, it's a way of Jason Woodrow being able to keep track of all the biological life forms on Earth through these, these biosurveillance in this, through these Lamios, Lamia spores. And also mind controlling everyone. And so now suddenly, uh, as bad as Poison Ivy is, uh, there's somebody who's actually worse. Although I suppose I would rather be mind controlled and bio surveyed by Dr. Jason Woodrow than have all of humanity wiped out. So pick your, pick your devil. Would you rather have humanity destroyed under Poison Ivy or be mind-controlled under Jason Woodrow. Neither one is a particularly good option here, but I thought it was interesting. This is sort of like a real bad person battling a really bad person here. Uh, but I liked it. It's interesting. We got two very screwed up, psychologically screwed up villains uh, battling for supremacy over these Lamia spores uh, at the end here. So I thought it was interesting. I thought uh, Marcio Takara on the art did, did a really good job. Brian Level on the inks. Colors were really good. Again, I love the, my favorite were the flashbacks, the colors in the flashbacks for a conversation with, uh, with, uh, Dr. Uh, Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man. I thought were really good. The art here really shines. And we finally get some more information as to where this is heading going into the sixth and final issue. So what do you think? Yeah, I agree. The other thing that was sort of interesting, once you realize, you start talking about, um, Poison Ivy's origin and the things that she's kind of been through and her uh, her past relationship with um, with Woodrow, Floronic Man, and all that it kind of kind of gives her an out, right? It kind of gives G Willow Wilson an out for Poison Ivy. We've talked before about how you know she certainly seems like she's returned to her her villainous ways, and you know, well, can can that work? Can she come back from it? What about her relationship with? Um, with Ivy, you know, can that be ever be repaired? Is it, is it, you know, tarnished forever and that sort of thing? Well, by introducing the Floronic man as, as a, you know, possible reason for what's been going on, it, it gives, uh, poison Ivy and poison Ivy herself. And it gives G will Wilson an out, right? Like you can say, well, the Lamia spores were influencing Ivy. She wasn't really in control of her actions and, um, Again, it just, it gives an out. It gives, um, the ability to, to say, Hey, maybe she's not as bad. Basically, it lets DC have its cake and eat it too, right? Because we've talked before a lot of times about this idea of taking villains and turn them into heroes or anti-heroes and that sort of thing. And, uh, clearly they, they've done it with Poison Ivy. She's gone out from villain to anti-hero to straight up hero. If you want to put her together with Poison Ivy, can you do hero villain? Mm-hmm. You know, that works to some extent with Batman and Catwoman, although 
they've been sort of getting away from Catwoman being a villain also in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I like this, that it kind of explained what was going on. It brought in poison Ivy's origin and it leaves an out for Ivy in the future so that DC can do, you know, whatever they want with her without, um, without it not making sense, right? Like, Oh, she went on this killing spree and killed all these people, with these Lamia spores. How can she now be with, Ivy when Ivy's a hero and you know so yeah it, interesting story and, and it doesn't come across as like pandering either for you know how, how does she make this work uh, oh well they've given her an out but it, it doesn't make sense it's ex deus machina no this makes complete sense um, so when, as soon as Woodrow was introduced and he's got a link to the Lamia spores that's all I could think well he's really the bad guy um, and Ivy's been sort of under his influence all along uh, that may be the case, that may not, but at least the option is there. So, yeah, I do uh, find. Right about the, yeah, I was, was going to say one last thing. Uh, the, you're right about the art, kind of the the, the wildness of it, the um, abstractness of it, really suits the story as well. Yeah, I was, I was just going to add that I, I thought it was a nice touch by Jay Willow Wilson that as Poison Ivy is trying to figure her way out of sort of the mystery and 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 working working through her memories of the Floronic Man that she she hallucinates talking to Batman, and I thought that was a nice way to bring Batman into it and it shows sort of the maybe the tacit respect that Poison Ivy has for Batman that when she needs to figure something out she's hallucinating Batman, uh, which I, I thought was an interesting little touch and sort of a a good way to sort of slyly get Batman to make an appearance. Uh, it's obviously her own twisted version of Batman, but I thought it was a nice touch. Yeah, you're right. It works. It, it works really well because basically what it's doing is it's, it's showing us that, you know, e- even Ivy in her murderous state, what have you is uh, self-aware enough to know like where her judgment is, right? Like if she wants to know how to do what's moral, how to do what's right, it's kind of like, you know, WWBD, right? What would Batman do? So, yeah, I, I, I thought that was a great touch as well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have The Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing, number one. This is from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Carmen A. Dijon Domenico is the artist. Arif Prianto does colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, the Joker is back, uh, basically, is what this story is is about. I sort of feel like he never left. Um, <laughs> he wasn't. And we had him in Joker War most recently, right? By James yeah. Tynan a couple of years yeah. ago. And then we had the coming out of that. We had the Joker series, also from Tynan. But it, that was we've talked a lot about how it was really more than anything a, a Jim Gordon story, and the Joker showed up very um, infrequently. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really say I feel like the Joker's been gone. Um, and I'm a big proponent of taking the Joker off the page for a while. He's the Joker's a like, there's just too much Joker. You know, I talk about him being probably the most overused character other than Batman in the, in the DCU. So, um, what's interesting is we apparently have two different Jokers in this story. So I, I couldn't help but think of, um, the long awaited and ultimately disappointing three Jokers from Jeff Johns and Jason Fabic that, uh, that came out. So, um, yeah, not sure what's going on here because we see a Joker who, you know, shows back up and goes goes in to, to Gotham City and um, surprises some of his henchmen and says, I'm back. And they, they kind of push back against him saying, hey, we were doing fine without you. Um, and then even some of the, the heavier weight villains in Gotham, Black Mask, Two-Face, Riddler, they all show up and go, yeah, we, we kind of figured out a new sort of 
um, uh, dynamic without you here, Joker. Like there's not a, you left, there was a bit of a power vacuum. We kind of figured out where everybody stood. We don't need you back. You know, we don't, we don't really want you here. Um, there's not really any henchmen quote unquote that, um, that will work for you. You're, you're done. Um, and then we see that Joker kind of push back on that and shoot somebody in the head. Who's got a, a bag on his head and Joker says, you know, go ahead and bring, bring that uh, or bury that person. He tells his henchmen. And so the henchmen go and they bury all these these people that were killed, including the guy with the, the hood on his head. But as they're about to toss the guy with the hood in the head, uh, with the hole in his head, with the hood on, uh, in this hole, he coughs. And the henchmen are like, wait, what's going on? And so they can't, we can't bury a dead guy. And eventually they take the hood off the guy and it's the Joker. So, well, wait a second. He was sitting in the chair while with the hood on his face uh, over his head, and and this other Joker was there. So, do we have multiple Jokers again? Is this playing off of what we saw in the Joker, uh, the three Jokers? I, I, in a way, I kind of hope it does because I wasn't really happy with the explanation uh, or the lack of explanation we got in the three Jokers of why there was three Jokers. But at the same time. While reading this, it reminded me that I don't really care for the Joker as a character. Uh, I just really don't. I don't think he's interesting. I don't think he's compelling. I agree with you. Um, And I'm just, frankly, we haven't gotten a break from the Joker. So to have him come back was disappointing. And don't get me wrong. I'm I'm a huge Matthew Rosenberg fan. If anything, seeing what he's done, I I like the stuff he did over at Marvel. And if anything, seeing him come over to DC and do – things with grifter and red hood. And um, we know he's got wildcats coming up. He's uh, stuff. He's done in Batman urban legends, task force Z. Like he's done an incredible job. He clearly is passionate about these characters, but um, I just, I don't care. I don't care about the Joker. Uh, and then there is a, ba- a backup story. That's also by Matthew Rosenberg with art by um, Francisco Francavilla that, also was kind of nonsensical. It's about the Joker wanting to go out with power girl. Now that might be the one instance in which I can relate to the Joker. Cause who wouldn't want to go out to power girl? She uh, go out with power girl. She's hot. Um, but it, it, it was kind of a nonsensical story despite the uh, very colorful art from Frank Villa. So for me, this whole issue is a bit of a miss. Um, but I will say that with the caveat that, if this does somehow tie into three Jokers and, and help explain that story, it'll have value. Um, but other than that, yeah, it just I, – I this wasn't any fun to read. And, and again, it's not anything technically about the comic that's bad um, because I, it's a very well put together book technically. I just – God, I'm so sick of the Joker. Uh, you know, I just, I just am. So – uh, what do you think? Well, I, the, the, the main story, uh, which the main story threw me off, but I, I like the misdirection there. The idea that, you know, this, this is just the, the Joker ha, has a bunch of hostages, ends up uh, being confronted on it by other uh, of Gotham's rogues gallery, and he ends up killing all his hostages. Uh, but one of them hostages are still alive. They have a mask on. And at the end, the mask is removed and it appears to be another Joker. So did so was the original Joker not really the Joker and what's going on? Because as this as this hostage that was shot in the head is revealed to apparently be 
another Joker. Well, the 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 other Joker, what, what we think is the real one, maybe, is actually on a terror. He's he's not just terrorizing Gotham. He's wiping out mobsters and bad guys in all the major American cities. And so this Joker, this 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 other Joker who was the the hostage who was shot in the head but is now back and as the joker now apparently he's you know it's this is called you know uh, this entire thing is you know who's laughing now it's not funny anymore so is this this new joker is gonna take out the old joker uh what what's going on here what i would have thought now this is me playing script doctor but i would have thought it would be more interesting of wouldn't it be more interesting if this was just an average guy that he's shot in the head so the bullet lodges in his head and makes him think he's the Joker and he's hell-bent on revenge so he's going to become the Joker to take out the Joker. So like literally a guy who's got nothing to lose, he's got a bullet in his head, he's going crazy and he thinks he's the Joker and what can one hu- what can one ordinary citizen do to cross a line to become competitive against the Joker to take out the Joker. I thought maybe that was the angle that Rosenberg was going at. I thought that would be cool. As it stands now, we got two Jokers now instead of maybe the three we had under Jeff Johns. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting the feeling like you or I don't even hope that it's necessarily related to that because I, I think that that's a very different feel kind of story, but maybe it is. Um, I know Matthew Rosenberg, he, he's got, he's always got some good ideas. He's always a little wonky on the execution. I know a task force Z. Uh, we had the first, the opening issue was always, he captivated my interest in the opening issues and then it got really boring for five or six issues and then he nailed the landing. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, he, he continues to improve. Like, I don't mind Rosenberg. He continues to, uh, you know, he, he always keeps me intrigued and I am intrigued on this story. Um, now as for Power Girl, I gotta, you know, thank, thank you, Amanda. I gotta give a shout out to Amanda Connor. She's, uh, she got me totally in love with, uh, Power Girl during her Power Girl run, her amazing art. I love Frank Avila. I love that. He, I love how he draws Power Girl here. Uh, you're right, uh, Jace. This story with but of the Joker being in love with Power Girl, and he's so disappointed that Power Girl hates me. What? How do I get Power Girl to hate me? And or how do I get Power Girl to love me? And and they and it's a kind of a crazy story. It's it's almost like the Joker acting like Harley Quinn, trying to wear different clothing and trying to dress up and try to impress. You know, trying to look differently. And so Frank. Villa is drawing the Joker in very different iterations as he's trying to think, you know, what what's the best suit to impress Power Girl? And then at the end, all he does is create chaos in Gotham City and it's burning down. And he's imagining uh, being on a date with Power Girl, uh, Karen Starr. And and that's really it. It's uh, it's not much of a story, frankly, but it's a fun one. And I, I put it more in the I, I put it more in, in the neighborhood of almost like a uh this is a Joker story if the Joker was Harley Quinn kind of thing. So I didn't mind it. I love Frank Avila's art, so I enjoyed it for that reason. But all in all, I'm I'm intrigued to see what Rosenberg's gonna do with uh with this with his story. I just hope he doesn't drag it on for six issues. <laughs> yeah, I can't can't disagree there. So uh all right, up next we have Sword of Azrael, book number three from writer Dan Waters. Art is by Nicola Semegia, colors by Marisa Louise, letters by Hassan Atman Elhau. Uh, you alluded to it earlier. What'd you think of this? Um, uh, sorry, I'm just letting, uh, it, it, uh, I always gotta wait till the comic comes up on my, uh, screen here. Uh, uh Dan Waters has, uh, impressed me on this. I did not think I would, 
I've never really been an Azrael fan, frankly. I've never I, I I thought he was the most interesting during the you know Nightfall stories, series, and I I've never really gotten into him. Uh, but then funny thing with Justice League Odyssey, I actually liked the idea of Ezrael in space, and he had a he had a crazy character arc and story arc in Justice League Odyssey, where he became a god on another planet, and very very different than the sort of like the obsessed. Christian obsessed, uh, knight of the, of the order of St. Dumas as he's returned to his roots here. And, uh, I like what Dan water, Dan waters has uh, fully embraced that there is this new person on the scene, this poor fellow that is a, that is a, a, a Templar knight. And she's a, she's a warrior who, uh, originally the Templar knights in DC lore were apparently, uh, given the mission to destroy all the Lazarus pits. And this, this, uh, Poor fellow, uh, who is on the co- one of the variant covers, she basically is, 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 the issue starts off with she's talking to this young woman that, uh, in- initially sought out, uh, Jean Paul Valley, uh, at, at the beginning of this series. And she's actually, this, this new woman is actually destined apparently to be the new, uh, angel of, of, of Satan, uh, essentially. And poor fellow wants to recruit this Brielle girl to be the new angel of death. And just like the, the, uh, the order of St. Dumas, their primary knight that they would send out that they, that they programmed and sent out on missions. That was Azrael. Well, poor fellow as a member of the Templar Knights wants to recruit Brielle to be their primary agent to presumably go out. And I'm assuming, you know, do their bidding, uh, which, you know, at least at the initially was about eliminating all the Lazarus pits or what have you. So at some point, as uh, Jean Pau Valley in this issue realizes he feels he has failed Brielle because he doesn't want Brielle to be programmed like he was early on in his career because he just became a puppet of the Order of St. Dumas. He doesn't want Brielle to become just a puppet of the Templars, of the Templar Knights. And so that's really all that happens here. I was a little confused near the end, I'm not going to lie. Azrael ends up having a vision with the um, with what appears to be, uh, I, I think, some misdirection. Appears to be uh, a Satan himself. So Azrael hallucinates or has some sort of uh, interaction with literally Satan. That's what he calls himself. This this uh, demon like form calls himself the Satan, and is I'm not sure. Satan is obviously. I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what's going on. To be blunt, uh, I'm not sure what's what's why is Satan appearing. How is we know this Brielle is destined possibly to be this new angel of death, but how does that relate to Satan appearing at the end of this issue? Uh, I think poor fellow. I actually like poor fellow. She's a pretty cool warrior. I somehow I'm inclined to think that at the end of the day. Azrael and Perfello and this Brielle character are going to be on the same page. They're all going to be on the same team fighting Satan. I think Satan is playing them all off against each other. I think, I think this sort of reminds me a little bit of it'd be sort of like having different religions. If you, you know, if you, I suppose you can get a Christian and as, as you know, a person of Islam, a, per, a, a Jew and a Christian and get them together and they could fight over their religion. But if you give them a common cause to fight against, they would put their religious differences aside and fight for the common good. I see maybe that, maybe that's where this is going that, you know, re, you have to remember whatever your faith is, 
good is still good. You know, there, there are certain universal truths and universal bads that you have to fight. And I'm hoping that Perfeller and Azrael and Brielle ultimately will see the same light at the end of the, at the end of the day. So, um, uh, I'm still intrigued by it. I was, it was a little wonky, this issue. Uh, artistically, I thought it was uh, a little wonky as, as, as well. Uh, I thought the art by Nicola says, says Magia. Says Messija was uh, a little wonky, but it, it served a purpose. I, I I do get a strong sense that they're dealing with uh, Satan here, and and there's consistency throughout. Uh, overall, I'm still on board. I'm still really curious to see where this is going because I am intrigued by the character Perfello and this new character called uh, uh, Sariel. So, what do you think? Yeah, I'm enjoying it as well. You know, I, I talked a lot when Dan Waters first came on about. Uh, kind of the worry that I had about how much he was leaning into the religious aspect of Azrael, which I find to be the the least interesting part of the character. Like it just it, it's so it's just so uninteresting to me. And you know, I've talked about you know my, my own religious upbringing, and maybe that's why it's such a turnoff. Um, but he re- has really turned that around in 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 this series with with basically an Azrael who's trying to turn his back on his religion as well. You know, his, his programming and everything that he's had to deal with that he, he doesn't care for. And so uh, that is something I can certainly relate to. So I've, I've liked what he's been doing and I think it works on, um, on a lot of levels. Now that being said, um, he does go back and mine things from, from the past. And so, uh, that that's where this Satan comes in. So, Obviously, if you talk about Sariel, this new character, Sariel, that's the name of an angel. Azrael, that's the name of an angel. Satan, uh, or Lucifer, as he's more commonly known, that's the name of an angel. So what this Satan is, it's basically the first attempt by the Order of St. Dumas to create an avenging angel. Um, and they they realized that they took it too far by basically – it's not 100% clear what they did – they bioengineered something or they, they basically created a Frankenstein's monster type creature. Um, and so that's what Satan is. It, it's not a hallucination. It's actually the, basically the first, um, the first warrior created by the, the order of St. Dumas to go out and into the world and, and be an avenging angel. And then when they created it, they realized they had made a mistake by doing that. And so that's why they've made the change that they, they made and went with, you know, more, by pro- programming humans with the program and what have you, uh, and left that first uh, first attempt there trapped in this mountain. So you can imagine why Satan would be uh, the, the creature. Satan would be kind of angry at being trapped there all those years. So interesting aspect, um, and I imagine we'll see Azrael destroy Satan, which is an interesting uh, metaphor, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, on to the book you've probably all been waiting for, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, number five. Joshua Williamson on the script, Daniel Semper on art, Alejandro Sanchez does colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Gorgeous art throughout. Uh, if anything, I mean, Daniel Semper, he's just so good. He's so good. Like, I think Rocky really fell in love with his art on the Aquaman, Future State Aquaman series. I first noticed it, you guys have heard me say it a hundred times, on the Justice League Annual during Scott Snyder's run. And, you know, he went from there to the, um, to that Aquaman future state to action comics, left action comics to do this. And if anything, the guy's only getting better. Uh, I mean, his art is fantastic. His sense of storytelling, his sense of emotion, the panel layouts. And I know per- from a, uh, you know, personal experience from what he's told me talking about working on this, how much he's just killing himself working on this book. 
Um, and it shows. I mean, this art is absolutely amazing. And I would say the art is uh, enough to make me pick this up, um, despite the fact that the story it really still hasn't gone anywhere and is not making a whole heck of a lot of sense. It feels so disjointed. Um, it feels like Joshua Williamson, who's a huge DC fan and is doing his best, is trying to take uh, the, the the things, the events that happened in the original Crisis on Infinite Earth, which is revered and rightly so and holds a special place not only in the history of DC Comics but in all of comics as the first big like line-wide crossover that really kind of changed the, the shared universe. Um, he's taking parts of that. He's taking parts of Grant Morrison's multiversity. He's taking parts of um, what has happened in Death Metal – all, all these different things, and he's trying to create a cohesive narrative. And I, I, in a way, I sort of feel like he's given himself an impossible task to make all these incongruent parts of the DC universe work together um, because it's just it, – it's not working. Um, it, it's not moving fast enough, and uh, it, it doesn't make sense. There, there's so many plot holes, and – I think he, this either needed to be planned out as a true line-wide crossover so that you can give us a spine series that is hyper-focused on the main story of who's the bad guy. If it's Pariah, then what is he doing? Uh, you'll have you know the real estate to kind of show us and plan. Like, look at how they did the first original Crisis on Infinite Earths. They built up to that for two years, right? And I, I understand that maybe you don't have that much runway here, but – you've known for a while that this was coming. There's a way to do it and make it work. You know, first of all, give, give him a full 12 issues. Um, second of all, give us some, uh, some consequences and some ramifications of what's happening in justice league crisis in some other books. Instead, they kill off the justice league and their regular titles still go on. And so like, I just, I feel like the the decisions of DC editorial have kind of hamstrung Joshua Williamson in terms of, allowing his story to really have the weight and the impact that it, that it had. And I, I said as much when we had infinite frontier and we had justice league incarnate and we had whatever that third series was that led up to this, how it just, it felt like it was supposed to be so important, but none of the other books were referencing it. And so it's like, uh, you know, putting aside the, the issues of um, Priya being the big bad here, which doesn't necessarily make sense. Like first the big bad was the great darkness. Then it was Pariah infected by the great darkness and something else was controlling the great darkness. I've come to find out Pariah has infected the great darkness and it's Pariah that's the big bad. Like I, I don't, I don't know. It's it. And the thing is, it's not that they're bad ideas because if you look at the final splash page of this issue, we see Pariah there floating in front of the dark army and he has what looks to be uh, almost a hybrid of his own costume and, uh, the anti-monitor's costume. And it kind of works for me as much as I, I enjoy Pariah and I think is an underused character. And I don't necessarily want him to be a bad guy. Uh, I don't get to make those decisions. And it, at least it is interesting. And it does make that part of the story makes sense to me, right? Like uh, Perez and Wolfman and the rest of the guys that worked on the original crisis, they did a great job of, of showing the angst and the, the trauma and the turmoil and the, the emotional pain that, Pariah went through because he witnessed that uh, initial moment when um, when the Earth was created and what the Anti-Monitor had to do, uh, not the Earth, but the, the multiverse was created and 
uh, how the anti-monitor affected that and, and all that sort of stuff. So it made, it made, it makes sense that the anti-monitor would eventually crack under this, uh, this trauma. Um, I still rather would have seen it go the other way with Pariah kind of rising above and, and kind of not in a Batman sort of way where he takes his trauma and becomes this avenging knight, but um, more in kind of a real world type way where he realizes that he, he's got to stop being a pariah um, and kind of leave his past in the past and move forward and use the abilities he has to kind of help people um, to kind of try to atone. I mean, that would be a more helpful, hopeful version of Pariah that I think would suit the tone of the DC universe. But again, I don't make those decisions for whatever reason Williamson decided to make uh, take Pariah in this darker direction. If he ends up being the big bad, then so be it. Maybe there's redemption for him. I mean, um, we haven't seen it, but the last story that had Superboy Prime seemed to uh, redeem him, even though he hasn't shown up since. So again, there are some good ideas. There's uh, kind of this multiversal aware Superman when the rest of the justice league show up to his little, uh, shard universe or whatever. Um, and the other heroes are, are talking to him and he's like, you think I don't know? You think I don't know that this is all fake and imaginary. And we, um, we get this again, very, what I'll call a, a multiversal aware, uh, Superman, which is kind of interesting, uh, especially the way Danielson paired draws him. So again, there's a lot of good ideas here. I just feel like pacing wise and, um, and, and just real estate wise in terms of having enough space to, to tell the story and have it make sense. Joshua Williamson hasn't been given that. It, it just, the, the bones of a good idea and a good story and a good event are here. The execution has just been poor. And again, I, I blame DC editorial and, and kind of the um, the state of comics in a way. Like I don't think the way that comics are now in terms of sales and um, and and the the oversight with these big mega corporations now making the decisions for these uh, properties that are worth you know so much money to them. I, I don't even think that an event done in the way that crisis on infinite earth was done in comics back then. I don't think you can do that now. I don't think it's possible. There are too many cooks. There are too many people that don't know how comics should work that make the decisions. Um, they're all about the bottom line. They don't, you know, they don't care to be honest. They don't care about comics. And so, um, I just, I don't think that environment to create something as special and unique as the original crisis on infinite earth. I don't think that environment, exists anymore. Uh, and so really what I, what I wish is that they would stop trying because we can't help, but compare this to things. How, how can you not compare dark crisis to crisis, crisis on infinite earth, right? Like they came out at San Diego comic-con and said, dark crisis is not the name. The true name is dark crisis on infinite earth. And this is a direct sequel to crisis on infinite earth. How can you not compare? And I'm sorry, I know these people are putting their heart and soul into it. And I would say that Daniel Semper's art is, uh, you know, in, it's in the same conversation with George Perez's art on uh, crisis on infinite earths. And I know Daniel would be the first one to say, no way can you put me in the same league with George Perez, but uh, I'm enjoying this art in this series as much as uh, the art for Perez in the original. So, uh, you know, I, on that level, I, I would say, yes, they're pouring their heart and soul 
into it. But again, I just think the environment, the, the state of comics just doesn't work the way that it worked back then. You can't do a line-wide crossover. There's too many people that would say, you can't take Batman out of the Batman book. You can't take Superman out of the Superman book because they've been killed in this other event. No, you can't do that. Sales will drop. Uh, people don't want to spend, um, you know, all this money on a, on a line wide event. And, and they're, they're right in a lot of ways. Um, but that's because you're charging four and five bucks a book. Back then they were, they were 75 cents. So yeah, I, I just don't think the environment works anymore for a big event like that. So stop trying to do it. Stop trying to do it because you can't live up. You can't recapture the past. You can't live up to the past. It's different times. So I don't know what the answer is. You know, like DC is such a company that thrives on its continuity. And Rocky and I talk all the time when we review these books about the continuity errors and why things don't work. Um, And DC, to their credit, has kind of gotten away from trying to make things make sense, try to have their cake and eat it too. And I have mixed feelings about that, right? Like, okay, don't do events like this where continuity matters. Just don't. Um, just have everything be siloed and it works, but you're, you're losing out on one of the most fun aspects of a shared superhero universe. Um, but if you're going to do that and everything's going to be separate, then you can't do crossover events like this. Just don't even try. So yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about this because I know these guys are pouring their heart and soul into it, but it's just not living up to the legacy of the name, uh, Christ on infinite earth. So, um, and I know you're going to be much harsher probably, but, uh, I am later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'll, I'll just focus on the story and I, I, I don't, I can, I can agree with you in a general sense. I think you and I are often on the same page when it comes to DC editorial in, in general, but I, I can only cut Joshua Williamson so much slack on this only because I, I, he had the same, he did the same thing, uh, with his flash run, which is why I never liked his flash run. Uh, he's that he just loses, he, he loses his narrative and he changes the rules of the game. Uh, just as an example here on page 10, uh, on page 10 of, Je- of, of Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, number five of seven on page 10, we see Pariah again stating very explicitly, it's beautiful, the infinite Earth's return. Then on page 24, I just want to point out just the, 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 the nonsense here. On page 24, Pariah says, no, 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 my machine needs your power for the infinite earths to return. And uh, the infinite earths already returned at the, big, at, the big, at the end of last issue. We're reminded that the infinite earths returned on page 10 of this issue. Then the Justice League members throughout this issue, Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Batman, uh, they... They return and they confront Pariah and he's all upset because he needs their, they have to stay in their prison worlds because in order to power the return of the infinite earth, the infinite earths have already returned. They've already returned. Now I guess they haven't returned and I guess he needs them to go back to their prison worlds so that they can power them up, which he's already done. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, but you know, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that because Pariah, see, originally in the original crisis, whenever a world, whenever an infinite Earth, whenever an Earth within the infinite infinity of Earths was being destroyed, Pariah would be drawn to that Earth along with Harbinger and warn the Earth that it's going to be destroyed. Well, the, the big talking point in issue five here is that Pariah is drawn to Earth Prime, our Earth Zero, because it's about to be destroyed. 
and he's he he brings the dark army with him to destroy our earth and the titans and everything we it ends. That's the final issue, Pariah. The Dark Army is going to face off against the Titans, not the Justice League, because as Nightwing says, there's no Justice League anymore. There's only the Titans, and, and they're stepping up to the plate. The problem with this is that Pariah's been saying from the beginning, he needs heroes to power his machines. So why would he go to Earth Prime to kill and wipe out the heroes? Why would he do that? Why would he go with the Dark Army to wipe out the very source of the power he needs to create the Infinite Earths that he, which has already been created, but I guess he's backtracked and I guess it hasn't been created. And it's this, this whole thing, I, I just don't, I'm not following the, the, the plot thread here. And I, it just, this, it, it loses all kind of gravitas for me. So now we got this dark army. Finally, we got the dark army going to be battling somebody. We got, because I was, I was, I was actually, I was still kind of disappointed because we're still basically, it's the Titans versus Deathstroke again. So we've already got that battle in the, in the second and third issue. And we got wasted pages on Gar coming back. I mean, I mean, good God, Gar should have been, Beast Boy should have been killed. No one's died in this event. Nobody. This is the Great Darkness, but the Great Darkness isn't the threat, right? It's not the threat. Pariah is the threat. The Great Darkness, the Great Darkness has been horrible. It's been horrifying for how long, but now it's not a threat anymore. No, it's just darkness. It's the opposite of light. It's just dark. It's like shutting off the lights. It's not a big deal. It's just the darkness. It's just dark. Go outside at night. That's the Great Darkness. It's not a big deal. But if Pariah comes along and infects the darkness, then it's a big threat. This feels so small right now. So small. Plus, we got an infinite, we got an infinite number of Earths and we're only restricted to our heroes. I, I liked, at least before with Infinite Frontier, I felt that we were dealing with a multiverse. Here it feels so small. It feels like every issue all we're subjected to is is people worrying about Gar dying. I don't care about Gar dying. I want him to be dead, but he's not. Uh, I mean, no, no one's died, and we're just. I thought Gar, you know, I thought Gar was um, combined yeah. with Cyborg, and the yeah. only reason that they showed up as two people was because there was a magical spell. Yeah, I know. It doesn't make any, it it doesn't doesn't. Make any sense. Well, the other thing that irritates me, and it's a minor thing, but there's so many little minor irritations here. You know. Superman, it goes to, it shows Superman on his prison world where he's being very quiet and, and Batman, who looks ridiculous, by the way. Daniel Semper, did you design that Batman? Looks ridiculous. You have an opportunity to draw Batman and that's the Batman you draw? We don't even, the first time we get subjected to Batman in his prison world is in this issue and he's fighting the Flash, or I guess it was last issue too. I think the design, I think the design is terrible. It looks ridiculous. It looks like, I don't even know what it looks like, but it, it just doesn't look good at all. That's not like Batman. Why don't you make Batman look like Batman? Uh, it, it was, it was disappointing. And then Batman says he confronts Superman and Superman's talking about, oh, they all get to get together and the way to out, the way to defeat and get out of the prison worlds is, is if we all just focus on our friends which is about as stupid a plot point as Barry Allen being lost in the speed force and saying the only way I can get home is if I think about my wife. Please, where's this nonsense coming from? Uh, you know, one way to get out of our prisons is to just focus on our friends. You got, you got, you got multiple versions of your friends on an infinite number of Earths now. Like, I, I don't, I don't see that getting you home. It's too esoteric. It's too nonsensical. It's, it's just the whole thing just lacks any time of gravitas. And Batman thinks that Superman's really, really pissed off because he's quiet. And Batman thinks that 
the only time Superman, the way you can tell Superman is really pissed off, really angry, is when he's really silent like he was here. You know, we just came off War World. Superman was pretty pissed off and he, he expressed himself on War World. So I even disagree with Batman on that characterization. It doesn't work for me. I don't even know why Bat, why Superman looks the way, the way he's colored here, why he's all powered up. He looks blue and almost like he's electric. Why? I, I don't, I just, all the choices made here, the, the narrative, not in this, this plot line does not make enough sense to me to justify all this. There are so many places that I can go here. And then randomly in the middle of all this, Superboy returns to the Hall of Justice. I'm sorry, did I say Superboy? I meant John Kent. Um, son of Kal-El. He returns and says, oh, I just found out I, I've got this machine that the pariah has that cr- created the original infinite uh, Christ on the infinite earths. And by the way, pariahs corrupted the great darkness, which, you know, which I think is even more nonsensical than than suggesting what Black Adam did, that the Justice League died. But it, people believe John Kent, when he says that Pariah has infected the great darkness, John Constantine, and we just finished reading Justice, uh, Dark Crisis, the green, the green plague or whatever the hell it is. Uh, Constantine did not say the Pariah was infe- infecting the dark, uh, the, infecting the, the, uh, the great darkness. He said that we are infecting the great darkness. He never said Pariah was. So, and I think that's a pretty big distinction, Pariah versus all of us. Or that, you know, who was Constantine referring to? In any event, it's, I think it's a big deal. Um, I'm, there, there is, I'm so disappointed in this. Um, I'm just, I'm just stunned that this opportunity that, that w- was given for a coherent story, this story is not making any sense to me. I, I don't think that this flows very well. Uh, the next issue promises to be death to the DC universe. Uh, this to me is death of a narrative. I mean, uh, you know, at least with uh, Final Crisis, the actual death of a story is actually part of the meta tech context of Grant Morrison's story. This, I, I don't even know. What's the point? Like, um, wh- where are we going with this? So I guess, so if Pariah, and the other thing is, and this is one thing I don't think Joshua Williamson considered. If Pariah is successful, well, is that a bad thing? I, I like the infinite Earths, so we have more than one Earth. Why is that a bad thing? Why is everybody so gung ho about wanting to stop Pariah? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I still don't even understand. I mean, the Great Darkness isn't a big deal. I mean, that's not a big deal anymore. And Pariah's going to the big bad now. Okay, if Pariah's the big bad, he just wants to bring back an infinite number of Earths. So why not you let him? I. I don't even, I just feel like there's a huge disconnect. I don't think that Joshua Williamson, if he knows what he's doing, I would be surprised because I, at this point, he clearly didn't have any communication with the writers about these worlds without a Justice League, uh, which really still don't make much sense. And um, in any event, I this is such a huge disappointment for me. I could, I, I could talk for another 30 minutes and go through specific plot points that I think are just um, particularly... Um, Terrible. Although I will say there's one moment, which is cool, where Nightwing says, you know, we are the Titans, you know, he and he realizes that it's not about being a new Justice League. It's about being the best that you can be. And we are Titans. And he leads the he leads all the heroes against the, the, the dark uh, or against Deathstroke. That was cool. Uh, 
we kind of already saw that in issue two and three, but we saw it again. But, you know, and again, Daniel Sampier's art is, is pretty good too. But, uh, I, you know, as, as a narrative, I just feel this has gone, gone awry. And I, I just don't know how this can be fixed because this is so underwhelming. Now I no longer feel that the multiverse is under threat. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually wondering why should I care if Pariah wins? What's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal? So, so let's all of us power up the infinite earths. All right. So he needs more heroes to create the infinite earths. Well, he already, we already, they were already created at the end of the last issue and on page 10 of this issue. And then on page 24, he's worried about the infinite earths not coming back. There's a, there's a contradiction there that's right on the page. And I, 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 I don't know. I, it just, it baffles me. But anyways. Yeah, I mean, I feel, yeah, I feel the same way. I, I, I didn't understand either. I figured it'll be explained at some point about, yeah, why, okay, why is this a bad thing that the infinite earths are coming back? Like, you're restoring people to life that were destroyed. Yeah. The other thing that I'm not clear on, where's the Justice League incarnate in this? You know? Where's, yeah, that's where's, what, exactly. Where's Calvin Ellis? Where's he been like all this time? Like, he, they were such a part of the, the lead up, you know? They were such a part of Infinite Frontier. They were such a part of Justice League incarnate and, now they've totally disappeared. So anyway, uh, yeah, we're, we're struggling with this series as you can, uh, as you can hear. And I don't, I don't know how I, I, I would be shocked. It, it would be the greatest feat of comic book writing ever. If this is wrapped up in a satisfying way in two more issues. Yeah. Like, you know, it, <laughs> a satisfying way to, to, and maybe I'm being, you know, overly harsh when I say this, but in a way that Rocky, longtime DC fan, would be on board with, right? Yeah. Because while he may, may be a, a little harsh in some of his criticisms, they're valid. <laughs> they're valid. <laughs> These are problems in the narrative. These are holes in the plot. So how can you pull this together in two issues? I'll give you. I'll give you four. You can do it in a couple more tie-ins, a couple more one-shots, and, and two issues of the regular series. Yeah. I, I, again. Well, I, I guarantee I you, I know how Watt Williamson will do it. He does it the way he'll do it the way he did in, did in Flash all the time. He'll change the rules. He did that with Flash all the t- time. He, 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 I, I don't even, think, changing, he, I don't even he, think changing the rules would – I just don't see how – there's – this thing feels like it's barely getting started and there's two issues left. I said it at the beginning. Like when is it going to get going? And you were like, oh, no, I think it's – and now you're saying a lot of those things. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, well – I'm not trying to say I, I told you so. Um, well, go ahead but, and say yeah. it. I don't. I don't uh, care. I, I'm just. I'm just disappointed that you're. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. It, it didn't. I saw it coming, and it. It hasn't gotten better. So, anyway, yeah. uh, there is one more single issue that we didn't talk about because it's. It's more of a, a kids' book. I, I suppose DC would want us to say all ages, but uh, Batman Nightwatch, if you're so inclined, has its second issue out. Uh, and again, it's it's a very animation style and and very. Uh, sort of generic characterizations for, uh, for the Batman family. Um, there's also a couple of collections, absolute doomsday clock, hardcover, gorgeous to see Gary Frank's art in an oversized, you know, uh, I, I want to get that. I definitely want to get yeah. that. It's, it's so pricey in Canadian dollars though. That's the only thing, but yeah. I, I, it's, it's definitely yeah, I mean, on my wish list. Yeah. It's pri- it's 125 bucks here. So yeah, it's um, expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it does remind me of the inherent problems with Doomsday Clock in terms of the schedule and how it got pushed back so many times and it, it impacted other things. And uh, But, uh, you know, as, as it stands on its own, it is a good story. 
Uh, I don't think it quite, at least for me, lived up to expectations, but you can't argue with that gorgeous art. So uh, there's also, uh, speaking of uh, a letdown, Trial of the Amazons hardcover, which in good <laughs> conscience, I don't think neither Rocky yeah. or I could recommend. No. Uh, go back and listen to our Trial of the Amazons. Definitely uh, a myth. Episodes, if you if you want. And if you're really into like political stories where not much action happens, maybe it's for you. Uh, and then something I, I do recommend, Batman the Long Halloween, which is one of the best Batman stories, gorgeous art from Tim Sale. It has a new version called the Haunted Night Deluxe Edition hardcover. Uh, if you don't own that, um, yeah, that's not a bad investment for for fifty bucks. So, uh, anyway, those are the collections that are out this week. Those are the yeah. DC books. So uh, let's do pick of the week. What's what's yeah, your pick was, of the week? Yeah, I was gonna just say, God, it's 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 really tough um, because again, nothing like blew me away, and everything had its problems. You know, as much as I criticized uh, the latest issue of Batman, like you said, it was a wild and a fun ride. Um, but ultimately, <clears throat> man, I, I think, I think I have to go with Gotham city year one just for its potential. Uh, and, and the art, which really captured the aesthetic, I think that Tom King was going for that really kind of moody, you know, a lot of blacks and grays. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Gotham city year one. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I am too with honorable mention to Batman, but I will go with Gotham City uh, year one as well. I just thought it was it was it was refreshing, and uh, yeah. So I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yep, and uh, <laughs> we'll mention this again. I think this is probably the fourth or fifth week in a row. Yeah, we know we still owe you the best jacket uh, books for September. We will get to that uh, at some point, and also we still at some point we'll do that uh, unboxing video for you guys because I keep. Not as many books as I was previously buying, but still things arrive that I forget. Ah, I forgot that I ordered this or a Kickstarter that I forgot that I backed uh, and the pile continues to grow. So <laughs> we'll definitely at some point uh, do that. You mentioned you were on a, a live stream this weekend and then you had your uh, independent review. Uh, yeah. Those who are fans of Nerdette's newsstand, she had a she had uh, there was four people on the panel and we talked about masculinity and comic books. And I, I tweeted out uh, that it was actually a it was actually a discussion on masculinity that I thought was wasn't bad. It was uh, we, we, it never got toxic. It never got too. Uh, I don't I don't, it don't I don't think it got too political. We just it was a nice good talk on masculinity because I think it, it is an interesting top how masculinity has sort of evolved in terms of uh, how men are portrayed in comics over the you know for you know last four or five decades. And so you can check that out at Nerdette's newsstand uh uh YouTube channel. And uh uh Jim at Word Science uh DC podcasts and they they review Marvel and manga as well. Uh we do our independent reviews and that's that's on my site as well and we reviewed some uh uh, Junkyard Joe was uh, is our, our high recommendation for the week. That was our pick of the week yesterday. Uh, uh, Jeff Johns, Brad Anderson, and uh, Gary Frank. It's a uh, really good, and uh, it has a special black and white edition uh, Veterans Day issue, which I recommend people pick up the Veterans Edition black and white for Junkyard Joe. Two dollars of the purchase price goes toward uh, U.S. veterans, so I would suggest that. So, yeah. Well, so, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, I have some interviews coming up. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw the news about a bad idea Kickstarter that uh, is is kicking off soon, 
And New York Comic Con is coming up this week, so probably have the guys from Bad Idea on to to, to let us know about the Kickstarter right and give us uh, some more info about what's going on there. So look for that later this week, and then yeah, some some interviews will be coming up uh, at some point in the future. So again, we appreciate everybody joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube and check out Rocky's channel if you haven't done so already. Really appreciate uh, the support. Comment on the video, like, subscribe, ring that notification bell. It's comic space boom exclamation point. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you want to be sure not to miss any of the other audio only content for the comic source, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the comic source and subscribe there. So as always, we appreciate you joining us and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.